America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, a great nation facing great dangers, including the threat of nuclear war. So how exactly does the threat of nuclear war today, uh, nuclear war potentially involving either China or Russia, involving the Ukraine or the Middle East, uh, you name it, how does the threat of nuclear war differ from the threat in 1962 at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where, according to historians, we came closer than ever before or ever since to uh, an actual nuclear annihilation? We will get to that. We will also get to uh, ground zero in another sense in the... Uh, last complete week before the presidential election, the election is not Monday, it's Tuesday. Uh, people are getting their ballots in, doing their early voting. It all comes down to three states. That is what they're saying over at National Journal and everywhere. Three super close senatorial races. That will determine who controls the Senate. It's Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And whichever party wins two of those three Senate contests is likely to control the U.S. Senate. Pennsylvania getting a great deal of attention because of the colorful personalities involved, and nobody knows this race better than uh, Paul Kangor, who is right there in western Pennsylvania at uh, Grove City College, where he is the senior director and chief academic fellow for the Institute for Faith and Freedom. He's also professor of political science and uh, the author of multiple bestsellers. Paul, how many books have you done so far? It's a, an astonishing number. <laughs> well, hey, Michael, I think probably about 20. I haven't stopped the count, but I think, I think that's probably about right. Okay, hey, not, the, the fact that you haven't stopped to count is why you've been able to get so much accomplished, I am sure. Speaking <laughs> about getting a lot accomplished, um, right now a lot of attention to the extraordinary accomplishments of uh, uh, John Fetterman, right? Yeah, no, that's right. And really, the um, yeah, extraordinary in a very negative way. I mean, the man is um, hes about the strangest candidate I think we've ever seen. And I mean, I, that might be quite literally in all of American history in, in terms of the Senate. I mean, he, you know, he does not look like your typical senatorial candidate. I mean, he's not exactly a dead ringer for uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. I mean, the guy looks, um, I know this is going to sound cruel, like, a, like an insult around Halloween, but he kind of looks a little like Frankenstein and, uh, and Uncle Fester. And if people, if people listening think, oh, well, that's way over the top here, Professor, you're really name-calling, I would tell them, well, just Google a picture, picture of John Fetterman, and you, you will not disagree with, with, with that portrayal at all. I mean, he's a really odd-looking individual, and even more than that, he has really, really strange positions on things. And then to really add drama to the whole thing, Michael, in the last couple of weeks, I mean, the man had, um, and believe me, truly, I only feel bad and sympathy for the man on this, but he had a stroke back at the time of the Democratic primary, and he is really, you know, to put it mildly, 
he's kind of cognitively challenged right now. And we saw that about a week or two ago with, with the debate that he had with Mahmoud Oz, the, the Republican nominee. Uh, Fetterman had to start off by reading from a teleprompter, which is uh, you know, not the kind of advantage typically allowed in a debate, but Oz allowed this to happen in this case. And he began by saying, hello, everybody, good night. <laughs> and, and then it kind of all went downhill from there. And it kind of showed that, that, that really Fetterman should not be debating, should not be the Democratic nominee, and really is, um, I think, certainly not cognitively fit to, to be in the U.S. Senate the next six years, which I think even the Democrats realize, frankly. So it's, um, it's a pretty weird situation out here in Pennsylvania. Well, he he won't release his medical records. He won't open his physicians to answering questions about his condition. It's all very sad. And, and the one thing that comes back to me is you have people saying all over the place, President Biden is saying it again. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that I hate when people say this is the most important election of our lifetime. I mean, every election is important. And at every election, there are people who say this is the most important election ever. There has to be some that aren't quite that important. Right. But if this was such an important election, then wouldn't it have been incumbent on uh, uh, John Fetterman to step aside when he has this tremendously serious health issue? Uh, to basically pretend that it's not there. Speaking of pretending that it's not there, maybe you can help us because you're right there in Pennsylvania. There was a, a statement that he gave to an enthusiastic rally. There must have been a dozen people there. And by the way, that's not an exaggeration. That's about the size of the crowd he was <laughs> addressing. And he uh, aroused the crowd with a slogan that honestly I don't understand. Can you listen and see if you can make this into English, Paul? Uh, sure, here is sure. uh, here is John Fetterman from yesterday. Listen. What is he saying? Well, I have no idea what he's saying, and 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 frankly, he might not either. And if you heard his answers to the. To the question in the debate about fracking, which is one of the most important issues in all of Pennsylvania, <laughs> and something that he's that he's long opposed. Wait, wait. Um, he made and, it and very, very that. clear. As, as he he uh, has never supported fracking, and he has never opposed fracking. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what he said. He said both. Uh, he did say both, and and his supporters at that moment. Were, were probably, one, outraged that he suddenly seemed to support fracking, but on the other hand, probably realizing how confused he is, and that, again, he's not really cognitively able to do this, probably said, well, you know, he's just confused and not cognitively able to do this. But if Okay, case, here's, here's a question. really shouldn't be running. Here's a question for you, Paul, and there's a very provocative column that I'm sure you're going to want to respond to, by David Brooks appearing this morning and it basically takes a look at how the voters of America have divided and he says they've divided according to education is that right now the Democrats are the party of the college educated and uh, the uh, Republicans are the party of those who never got a four-year college degree how does that work out 
with John Fetterman. Do you, do you think he has a heavy appeal to people who are deeply educated? Well, and that, that's another really strange thing about him, Michael, is that he, so he looks like the typical guy that you would go to a Steeler game with, right? Uh, I wrote a piece for American Spectator talking about a friend of mine named Todd, who was a former police officer of Western Pennsylvania, who told me about going into a bar one time with a, with a, with a, one of his fellow patrolmen and a German shepherd dog named Dieter, who, who uh, Dieter attacked this guy who was throwing people across the pool table. The guy was right out of prison, like 6'8", 300 pounds, tattoos, bald head. And I thought, well, that looks like John Fetterman. And, and, and to, to a lot of you know, labor guys, union guys in western Pennsylvania who are all MAGA Trump Republicans who have gone racks on the back of their truck, a lot of those guys look at Fetterman and say, oh, that, yeah, that, guy, that guy is just like me. But then when they find out his policy positions, they think, no, that guy's like a guy from Harvard who hangs, who hangs out at the faculty club. And, and so it's kind of taken a lot of those MAGA Republicans in Pennsylvania a little bit of time to figure out that, that, that Fetterman is no you know, deer hunting Steeler fan. Right? This guy is a Bernie Sanders socialist. Okay, um, so what is that guy going to do on Election Day, and how is this election likely to go? Where are there going to be key surprises? We're going to continue the conversation with Paul Kangor of Grove City College, the Institute for Faith and Freedom, of which he is the senior director. We will be right back. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, back with uh, Professor Paul Kangor of Grove City College. He is the Senior Director and Chief Academic Fellow for the Institute for Faith and Freedom at uh, Grove City, a great little think tank that uh, does a phenomenal job illuminating the issues that matter most. And Paul, of course, is a lifelong Pennsylvanian. He lives in Pennsylvania. He knows the state. Uh, do you agree with all of the pollsters that this is going to be uh, an incredibly close race between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman? I do, Michael. And right now, I mean, Oz has been up in the polls lately, but for a long time, Fetterman was up. Now, a really big thing that happened. I think about 250,000 mail-in ballots, <laughs> here we go again with that in Pennsylvania, right, uh, went out about two months ago. And at that point, Fetterman was up in the polls. He was up probably about four or five percentage points. But I know people on the Oz campaign who told me that they felt at Labor Day that if they could be within three to four percent of Fetterman in the polls, that they would pull this out because they thought there'd be Republican turnout would be that much higher. And and then the turnout thing seemed to change a little bit, seemed to wane a little bit for Republicans. But now it's high again. And if you look at the very latest polls, in fact, I think Real Clear Politics this morning had the race overall with the composite average um, Oz up by 0.2 or something like that. And the latest polls usually have Oz up by a couple percentage points. So, so if, if I had to bet on this, I, I would bet Oz. I, I think I think Oz will win this now, and 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 really, 
if, if Oz doesn't, this would be a national embarrassment for the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, Fetterman is not just weird and odd, but again, this guy is somebody who's really not fit to be in the Senate right now. And let, and let me add this. I think it's a very important point. Democrats, which, which really shows how kind of, kind of Machiavellian they are, and maybe even merciless, they, 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 they just want Fetterman to win the seat because they're banking on Josh Shapiro, the Democratic nominee, to beat Doug Mastriano, the Republican nominee, in the governor's race, which he probably will. And if that's the case, as long as Democrats win the seat, Shapiro could replace Fetterman. In fact, he could replace Fetterman with, a lot of people are thinking, Fetterman's wife here in the state of Pennsylvania. So, so for people who are thinking, what are the Democrats nuts? The guy, the, guy, the guy couldn't even go in the Senate and debate if he wanted to. Well, I think they realize that. They just want to win the seat, and then they'll deal with those issues after they have it. Is, is Fetterman's wife's name Giselle, right? It is. That's right. Just like uh, Tom Brady's wife. Right. Or ex, soon to be ex-wife. Right. Uh, OK. Right, right. His wife has yep. a deep, deep political uh, uh, qualifications to be a United States senator. Yeah. I mean, the idea of Giselle Fetterman as a, uh, a Democratic U.S. senator from Pennsylvania without ever having run for anything, I believe. Uh, at least John Fetterman was mayor of the small city of Braddock, where he was a controversial um, uh, uh, administrator, to say the least. So wait, uh, does Giselle Fetterman have any political qualifications at all? No, she really doesn't, which, of course, is not going to stop the Democrats. And and uh, what I was saying about Fetterman and Braddock, there's an infamous moment where a where Fetterman as mayor hears gunshots. OK, and a black jogger jogs by and Fetterman literally goes into the back of his car and pulls out a shotgun, Michael, a shotgun. Right? I mean, we have concealed carry permits here in Pennsylvania for handguns and so forth. I have one, but I don't drive around with a shotgun in the back seat of my car. All right. Fetterman grabs out a shotgun and, and, and holds this black jogger there and doesn't let him go. Because he immediately suspects that this guy is is the person who who, who fired the gunshots. Okay, now, we, we, were just, Trump, we were just talking, like we were just talking. We were just talking about uh, how the American people seem to want an outsider, and it's one of the reasons that General Bulldog in New Hampshire uh, now appears to be nosing ahead of Senator Maggie Hassan, which would be a big pickup. That would guarantee, frankly, Republican control of the U.S. Senate. But the point is, General Bulldog is winning because he's a political outsider. He doesn't seem to be. Doesn't a story like that one that I know that Republicans love to tell about John Fetterman and the shotgun and the jogger, uh, doesn't that really help him seem? I mean, his whole persona is outsider, is the thing with the goatee and the tattoos, and he used to wear. He wore shorts in the winter time when he went to meet President Biden, and you know he is six uh, eight and over three hundred pounds. But uh, that outsider image uh, really helps John Fetterman rather than hurting him, doesn't it? It does until people the last four or five months in Pennsylvania started to learn about his crime record and just how weak he is on crime. And then you had another of these really odd contradictions about Fetterman. So he seems like somebody who 
and drives around with a shotgun and is, and is going to stop a jogger who he suspects might have caused a crime. And on the other hand, he's incredibly weak on crime. And so, and so that seems like a giant hypocrisy there in that case. He wears a tattoo. Actually, he did wear a tattoo. It now has a black rectangle over top of it, which it had the words, I will make you hurt on it, which was from back in 2015. And he's now covered that up. So <laughs> he's not, weird not a good again. slogan when you're running for Senate. Um, okay, speaking of good no. slogans when you're running for Senate, you have a new piece on the difference between threats of nuclear war in October 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and right now. What's the crucial difference? Well, I think the crucial difference is that Putin is really ruthless. And Nikita Khrushchev did not want nuclear war. And as soon as he realized that Fidel and Che actually wanted to fire the missiles, he got them out of there as quickly as possible. But I think Putin, despite what he said in the last couple of weeks, would actually use some sort of tactical nukes on the Ukraine if he felt desperate with no other choice. So it's a very real threat. And then what does the U.S. Uh, respond? Well, I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith in Joe Biden. Unlike a lot of conservatives who have been very critical of him for talking and using words like Armageddon, I respect that. I appreciate that he realizes how dangerous it could get. But um, no matter what, we just can't be dragged into something that would require us to uh, you know, fire back in response. Yeah, but that uh, that doesn't mean that uh, you support Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was calling today for uh, Republicans when they take control of the House not to authorize another dollar for Ukraine. That is not the position you would no. take. Yeah. No, absolutely not. And I'm very chagrined by the Putinists in the Republican Party. Amen to that. Faith and Freedom, uh, the Institute for it, which is at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll link uh, Dr. Kangor's most recent columns at michaelmedved.com, and we will be right back. Michael Medved show there is a very provocative uh, column about America's divisions and America's divisions argues David Brooks in the New York Times have almost nothing to do with policy but they have to do with almost everything else what does he mean he writes my big takeaway from this election season would be this we're about where we were we entered this election season with a nearly evenly divided House and Senate in which the Democrats had a slight advantage. We'll probably leave it with a nearly evenly divided House and Senate in which the Republicans have a slight advantage. But we're about where we were. Nothing the parties or candidates have done has really changed this underlying balance. The Republicans nominated a pathologically incompetent Senate candidate a pathetically incompetent Senate candidate, he actually writes, Herschel Walker in Georgia. But polls show that uh, the race is basically tied. And there are brand new polls today. Again, some that show Warnock ahead, some that show Walker ahead, some that show them actually tied. The 
um, Democratic nominee, uh, a guy in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, suffered a stroke and has trouble communicating. But polls show that that Senate race is basically tied. After all the campaigning, writes uh, Dave Brooks, and the money and the shouting, the electoral balance is still on a razor's edge. What accounts for this? It's the underlying structure of society. Americans, he says, are sorting themselves out by education into two roughly equal camps. As people without a college degree have flocked to the GOP, people with college degrees have flocked to the Democrats. Education polarization is not merely an American phenomenon, writes Eric Levitz in New York Magazine. It is a defining feature of contemporary politics and nearly every Western democracy. But it's not as David Brooks alleges. And I'll tell you why not. It is not evenly divided in this country between people with college degrees and people without. There are more people in America, more adults, and even among young Americans, there are more people in the country without four-year college degrees. And if you're going to use that as the divider, then Republicans should win, uh, assuming that they, they do better among the non-degree holders. They should win overwhelming majorities. I mean, really big majorities. And they might do that in the House of Representatives of the United States. In the Senate, it's, it's tougher. And, and again, if you look at these races, they are so close. But who knows? It is possible that this division that uh, David Brooks talks about could bring out some uh, real Republican surprises. As uh, Rita Shera, uh, Carlin Bowman, and Nate Moore noted, this is again from David Brooks, in a survey of polling data for the American Enterprise Institute last month, the gap between non-college and college whites continues to grow. Democrats have reason to worry about losing working-class Hispanic voters in places like Nevada. If Democrats can't win in Nevada, one Democratic pollster told Politico, we can complain about the white working class all you want, but we're really confronting a much broader working-class problem. Even black voters without a college degree seem to be shifting away from the Democrats to some degree. Uh, and... Uh, some believe that racial resentment is driving the white working class away. Some believe Democrats spend too much time on progressive cultural issues and need to focus more on bread and butter economics. I'd say these analyses don't begin to address the scale of the problem, says David Brooks. America has riven itself into two different cultures. It's very hard for the party based in one culture to reach out and win voters in the other culture, or even to understand what people in the other culture are thinking. What's fascinating about this is, okay, let's say he's right. Then how do you explain Fetterman and Dr. Oz? Uh, Dr. Oz's worst moment in the campaign was saying that his wife was going to uh, get some fresh vegetables to serve crudités with the idea that uh, Dr. Oz, who has a medical degree, obviously, he um, was a sex successful surgeon uh, even before his TV career, but that uh, Dr. Oz 
you would think would represent people with education and John Fetterman, well, not so much. I mean, I know he is he has taken courses and and uh, uh, attended various colleges, but in terms of the culture to which they are each appealing, doesn't that get somewhat reversed? Maybe that's why the Pennsylvanians are having such a time deciding. Meanwhile, somebody uh, with supposedly cross-the-board appeal has just come out to endorse Fetterman, despite the fact that uh, Oprah Winfrey, and that's who I'm talking about, actually launched the career of Mehmet Oz. Uh, she made him a celebrity. And uh, she said this, however, about her vote. This is clip two. I said it was up to the citizens of Pennsylvania, and of course, but I will tell you all this, if I lived in Pennsylvania, I would have already cast my vote for John Fetterman for many reasons. Okay, uh, and some of the reasons, well, Fetterman enunciated them in one of his own recent interviews. This is clip five. And I'm sitting within a chair with you right now to have this conversation to really just address uh, the fact that I'm absolutely set to, to serve. Okay, so he said sit to serve. Sit to, He's struggling. Yeah, and now uh, he was on The View where a, a co-host introducing him was able to do some of the heavy lifting. This is clip six. Mr. Fetterman, um, I was happy you released the, an updated letter from your doctor, um, and it's clear your post-stroke struggles are not cognitive and would not hinder you as a senator. So I'm going to just go ahead and move on and treat you like regular candidate. Dr. Oz, you hit him often. Uh, okay, Dr. Oz, you hit him often. Uh, but again, a letter from his doctor who, who is unwilling to answer questions. And uh, then again, when you talk about um, sort of looking down on the other side, people on the left looking down on Republicans as uneducated boobs, how about this as an example of that? This is Joy Reid on inflation. Uh, listen, clip one. The people I ever heard hear use the word inflation are journalists um, and economists, right? Economists, right? So that is not part of the normal lexicon of the way people talk. So it's interesting that Republicans are doing something they don't normally do, right? Which is not use the, com the common tongue, right? Not use just common English to sort of use do on their campaigns like they're doing with crime. But what they've done is they've taught people the word inflation, right? Yeah. Most people who would have never used that word ever in their lives are using it now because they've been taught it, including on TV, including in newspapers. They've been taught this word, and they, they sort of wrap this word around whatever it is that they really want to vote, the, the, you know, the reasons they really want to vote. Okay, if that's true of you, you, you never heard the word inflation before this election? You, you had to be taught the word by Republicans? In other words, what she is saying is that anyone who is actually even considering a Republican vote is in uh, Joy Reid, uh, Joy Reid's estimation, a boob, an ignoramus, a fool. I mean, it's completely absurd. The, the overwhelming majority of Americans understood and understand the word inflation. And if they didn't understand it before, they certainly understand it now because they feel it. We experience it. More coming up on The Medved Show.
kudos for having the best show on radio. The Michael Medved Show, 1 800 955 1777. of debate. You're trying to stir up controversy. The Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, there is a point that needs to be made and made again, which is that denialism, denying realities, is a political loser. If uh, you're looking at the basic fundamental truth in the world, you can't deny it. And this, of course, is true of people who deny that President Biden actually won the election. He did. But it's also true on the other side. And this is the important point that many people miss. You have Democrats out there led by the leader of the Democratic Party, the president of the United States, who basically are denying the hardship that Americans are feeling because of the inflation because of a difficult economy and i know we got job numbers today that were a little bit better than expected and that's a good thing but we are still worried about being driven into a recession which would be necessitated by the inflation and yes americans know what inflation is they certainly know now and they know a basic economic denialism when they see it when people say oh no things aren't bad and no people aren't suffering people aren't facing hardship this is a uh, president biden on his <laughs> his personal and extremely subjective uh, view of the economy clip 12 so the economy is up price inflation is down real incomes are up Gas prices are down and need to come down further. Exports are all also up, which means a simple thing. We're making a lot of money in America for, because of that. Okay, and again, uh, he is the president. Uh, it is possible to feel sorry for him. Can we just hear that again? I mean, given the fact that this is the number one issue in this election, it's the number one issue before the public right now, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is again the president of the United States. Listen. So the economy is up, price inflation is down, real incomes are up, gas prices are down, and need to come down further. Exports are all also up, which means a simple thing: we're making a lot of money in America for, because of that. We're making a lot of money in America because of that. Uh, he hasn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't seen my retirement accounts. He hasn't seen, uh, I mean, honest to goodness, it's uh, anybody out there, and about about half of Americans have 401Ks or IRAs or some, some form of retirement accounts. And yeah, you tend to get uh, at least a number of those accounts send you reports at the end of October, and it's appalling. It's appalling. Now, a part of what they say is the end of October reports you get are often from September. And September was particularly a bad month. October was a little bit better. But still, if you look over the course of the year, and this is an election year when we are making a decision, the, uh, 
the idea that, that most people can't look at their own savings and their own investments and their own plans for the future and see that it has been decimated. And, okay, it's not all the president's fault, but what portion of it is the president's fault? And the faults of the people who are running uh, both houses of Congress. This is why some smart Democrats actually are saying that if you believe that things are going to be kind of tough over the next couple of years, and I think that's entirely possible, uh, then at least this way, with the Republicans likely to take over both houses, uh, they would be available for blame. And uh, Katie Porter, Democrat from California, was also speaking to John Stewart, who's back in the interview game again. Uh, she was speaking to John Stewart about inflation and the economic issues. Listen, this is clip seven. Inflation is always complex. Anyone who says, and this is the Republicans all day long, inflation's bad. No sh Sherlock. Of course, inflation's bad. I, too, go to the grocery yeah. store. So that is not a policy statement, by the way. Congresswoman, put that in your commercial. That You're, you're allowed to use this footage. This was not paid for by taxpayers. I want to see you right now, Congresswoman Katie Porter. No Sherlock. Let's get this done. I mean, that's all Republicans have to say, which is inflation is bad. Well, yes, yeah, folks, yeah. We, we get that. I just bought Fritos for $4.99. I, I spent $10 to feed these children yeah. Fritos for crying out loud. Okay, uh, again, at least there's an acknowledgement. And one of the questions is, okay, so what would Republicans do about it? At the very least, they will change some of the economic emphasis and some of the directions. There will be more concern uh, with the, the immediate term on how American families live and survive and handle their own needs and maybe less of a focus on long-term climate change. Uh, it's, it's a whole different concept of shaping the economy. By the way, do you remember one of the big initiatives and certainly one of the most expensive initiatives that President Biden was pushing and he didn't even bother to get any congressional assent on this was his $426 billion for forgiving student loans. Uh, that is a legitimate issue. And by the way, smart Democrats like Tim Ryan in Ohio are opposed to that. He doesn't even have support from his own party. And uh, the, the problem is that when the president speaks to the American people and you don't get unlimited opportunities to do that, one of our most effective presidents politically in terms of building his long-term future, future that was cut off by an assassin, John Kennedy was very careful about doing too many press conferences or too many big speeches because he was worried about overexposure. Joe Biden doesn't seem to have that problem. And uh, especially trying to bring back the defending democracy issue. Uh, Jake Tapper on CNN points out, I think insightfully, uh, that that is not a core issue for most Americans. This is clip 15. 
President Biden issuing this warning near the U.S. Capitol uh, this evening. Biden hoping that voters will cast their ballots with defending democracy in mind. The reality is, with six days to go, that's not where voters' heads seem to be. The latest CNN polling showing that the economy and inflation far outrank any other issue in voters' minds. 51% say it's a top issue. Abortion comes in second at 15%. For people voting on the economy, the numbers show they trust Republicans more to handle the issue. And it's translating to this, the majority of voters favoring Republicans to take the House. The shifting winds mean that the congressman in charge of protecting the Democratic majority in the House is at risk of losing his own district. That man is Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney of New York. And the Democrats have a prospect, a real prospect, of losing four different congressional seats in New York. See, the problem with the defending democracy issue, and this is actually one of the reasons that the January 6th committee, I think they did some good and important work, but they didn't change the political equation at all. First of all, because President Trump is not on the ballot, and he's been pretty careful and pretty effective in keeping himself off the ballot. In other words, the looking back on the idea that President Trump uh, tried to overturn the election is about as ineffective as looking back and saying that, well, the Democrats cheated to get Biden installed. Can we, uh, let's hope that after this election, we will have less replays of the election of 2020, because the idea that you are going to win by turning the other side into bad guys, by saying they are guilty of the ultimate villainy, uh, that kind of idea is not a workable or appropriate uh, political strategy. I'll tell you what else is not an appropriate political strategy is ignoring uh, issues of really appalling bias, racism, and anti-Semitism. And this issue in professional basketball right now really does deserve a bit more attention. Is it really so terrible what uh, Kyrie Irving said and did? Hasn't he apologized enough? Does he need to get suspended from five games because of Holocaust denial and endorsing uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion? and other classic anti-Semitic texts. We'll talk about that threat and the uh, idea of a threat to synagogues in New Jersey and elsewhere in this greatest nation on God's green earth.